At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed. Have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters 5 through 7 to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. and continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures together. My name is C.T. Eldridge, the campus pastor here, and it's a joy to help lead us in worship as we hear from God's word. Romans chapter 6 is where we are in the scriptures this morning. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, the New Testament starts about three quarters of the way through. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, then it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the letters of the Apostle Paul begin after the book of Acts. And the first of Paul's letters within the Scripture's order is his letter to the church in Rome. And that's where we are right now, going all the way up until Christmas. So I'm looking forward to that. But this morning, we're in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. And as we often do, I want to help set the context for where we are in Paul's letter. We Help us understand the specifics if we can get the larger details. So let's zoom out and see where we've been so far in this letter. Paul begins the letter, this first big chunk of it, is really all about explaining our need for the gospel. Before he tells us what the gospel is, he wants to convince us that we need the gospel. So in Romans chapters 1 through 3, largely what he's laying out is our universal condemnation because of sin. We have no excuse before the bar of God's judgment. We all fall short of his righteous requirements. That's what Romans chapters 1 through 3 is all about. There is no distinction from one man to the next. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he turns a corner. And for the next two chapters and a half begins to explain justification from our sin. We're condemned because of our sin, but we're justified in Christ from our sin. God makes a legal declaration about us that we are right before his eyes, even though we're sinners, when we trust in Jesus. So that's the the good news that he lays out for us in those two and a half chapters from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through Romans chapter 5. And then you can go to the next slide, which is really what's going to set us up for this morning. So in chapter 5, verse 20, in chapter 5, verse 20, the apostle makes this astounding claim that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And what he's doing is trying to hammer home and deepen into our hearts the magnitude of God's grace. Yes, our sin is awful, terrible, and widespread, but God's grace is even more awesome and beautiful and more widespread. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That's how sufficiently, fully, definitively God has saved us in Jesus. We cannot out his grace. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And then in Romans chapter 6, Paul imagines one of his readers asking him a question. And he's going to interact with this imagined reader on the basis of this question. And it's really a moral dilemma. 
that Paul imagines himself to have gotten into. In other words, the imagined reader is thinking to himself, Paul, if you're saying where sin increases, grace increases all the more, you guys are going to go nuts. You guys are going to be moral degenerates if you think that you can't out God's grace. You guys are just going to go wild. And so Paul lays out that question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. You see it there. He imagines the question to be, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul answers the question in the same verse, by no means, that's not what I'm saying. And he answers that question as it relates to who we are in relation to sin and in relation to God. We are dead to sin and we are alive in Christ as pictured by our baptism. We are dead to sin. We were buried with Christ. And so the power of sin has been broken over our lives. We're not just forgiven from sin. The power of sin has been broken in our lives because when Jesus died, we died with him. We died to sin. And when Jesus rose, we rose to new life so that we would walk, so that we would live in newness of life by the power of Jesus' resurrection in us. That's how he answers the question. By the time he gets to verse 15, he essentially is going to retract and ask the question all over again. It's the same, same question he's going to ask because in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul mentions that we are no longer under law but under grace. And so again, he imagines one of his readers hearing this, that we're not under law. God's people are not under law, but we're under grace. He's like, he imagines somebody's thinking, Paul, if Christians aren't held within the bounds of God's law, you guys are going to go wild. So it's a moral problem that he's trying to help his readers understand. So he asks again in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And again, he quickly answers, by no means, that's not what I'm saying. And he answers it again in relation to our identity, that we are free from sin and we are slaves to righteousness. So that's what we're looking at. We're going to look at the specifics of how he answers this question once more in Romans chapter 6 verses 15 through 23. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, Christian, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Speaking in human terms, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, Christian, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free 
in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The star-spangled banner, the national anthem, It has an important place in our country's history and our cultural experience. So right now, it is being utilized as the universal pregame ritual for the Major League Baseball playoffs, which start this week and will include my beloved Houston Astros for five years in a row. Count them, no big deal. And it's also the pregame ritual for all of the awesome football games that we're getting to watch. And all of us probably have our favorite version of the anthem. Meg and I got to hear John Legend sing the song before the 2013 BCS national title game in the Rose Bowl. John Legend does a beautiful rendition of the song. Another one of my favorites is Marvin's version. He sang the anthem before the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. It's classic Marvin Gaye, and it is classic. You've got to YouTube it after the message. But of course, the indisputably best performance ever of the anthem is January 1991, Super Bowl 25 in Tampa, performed by Whitney Houston, just breathtaking and inspiring. And if you're ever discouraged about what's going on in our country, just YouTube it, listen to that song, and you will be proud to be an American again. It is incredibly powerful. And our country's love for our national anthem probably reveals a lot about us, but there's one part of the song that really stands out. It's the last line of the song. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. But the home of the brave part is almost a throwaway line to the land of the free part. We just needed something that rhymed with wave, so we threw in brave. It's the land of the free part. That's the real climax. You listen to some of the master performers of the song, and it's the land of the free part that really brings down the house, and that's when the jets fly over. You know, they time it just right. It's so powerful. So through this anthem, we declare one of the unquestioned values of our society. Freedom. We are free. We are the land of the free. We're free from tyranny. We're free from control. We're free from taxation without representation. We are free from you, King George. But it's not just our national song within which we sing this. Researchers have proven this. So renowned sociologist Robert Bela who taught at UC Berkeley for 30 years, was a prolific researcher and writer. Bella wrote a book called Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. And this book was really the magnum opus for his career, studying and analyzing American society. And in the book, Bella concludes simply, quote, for Americans, freedom 
is the most important value. In other words, we value freedom over all else. We want to be free from constraint of all sort. It is an unquestioned assumption that freedom is a good thing. Freedom is the best thing. And yet, as it often does, the truth of the gospel and the wisdom of the scriptures challenge our conventional thinking. We think, of course the world works this way. We take it for granted that this is the way things are. All the while, God would have us rethink things because based on these verses in Romans 6, everyone ever is a slave. Everyone ever lacks freedom. The most important kind of freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. And Jesus himself taught this truth. While chatting with some Pharisees in John chapter 8, he makes this comment. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So in Jesus' mind, sin isn't just bad behaviors we commit. No, sin is a power that dominates us, controls us, and enslaves us, stealing our freedom to be who God created us to be, holy, righteous, loving. And as we read Romans chapter 6, we're going to see the question is not, are we slaves? The question is, who are we enslaved to? Sin or righteousness? The question is not, do we have a master ruling over us? The question is, who is our master ruling over us? Sin or God? So let's see this in the text as it unfolds. And we're going to ask three questions to help us flesh it out. The first one is, who do you obey? Who do you obey? So look once more at verses 15 through 16. The apostle writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one whom you obey, a slave either of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So here Paul is simply explaining the logic of slavery. To be a slave is to obey your master. So if you obey sin, you're a slave to sin, like Jesus said, or if you obey righteousness, you're a slave to righteousness. This is just basic slavery 101. He's laying out the concept of slavery and applying it to sin and righteousness. Verse 17, he continues, but thanks be to God that you Christians who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and you've been set free from sin, and you've become enslaved to righteousness. So here Paul is explaining what has happened in the life of the Christian. He says, when you became a Christian, you, quote, became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and you were set free from sin, and became a slave of righteousness. So for the apostle here, becoming a Christian doesn't simply mean that we are forgiven 
of our sin. Though gloriously, praise God, we do get forgiven of our sin. We are justified even from our sin. But that's not all it means. Becoming a Christian also means that we are freed from the power of sin and we are enslaved to righteousness. Forgiveness from sin and freedom from sin. That's what's ours in Jesus. Over the summer, Meg and I became members of Paint Creek Country Club. And we were gifted a swim membership to this country club. So I didn't get to play golf, but still, we were swim members. We received the identity of members of this club. We belonged to them. We were included in this group. But our inclusion in this group, our status as members of this club, changed nothing about the way I lived my life. My attitude stayed the same. My actions stayed the same. My habits stayed the same. My marriage stayed the same. My parenting stayed the same. It was just the same old, same old. Just got to go for a swim every now and then. But nothing changed about me when I became a member of Paint Creek. Well, the problem is that many of us view Christianity this way. Yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. Yeah, sure, I'll identify as a Christian and I go to church every now and then, but it changes nothing about the way I live my life. My attitude is the same. My actions are the same. My habits are the same. My marriage and relationships are the same. My parenting is the same. It's just the same old, same old. That is called nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. It's called cultural Christianity because being a Christian is culturally acceptable in conservative America. But is it really Christianity? According to Romans 6, no. Here's how Paul puts it there. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, Christian, you've become a slave of righteousness. So becoming a member in the body of Christ changes everything. And we have a new master, Jesus, and we are slaves of righteousness. So a crucial question for us is, who do you obey? Not just what do you believe. It's important what we believe. And what we believe and who we obey are wrapped up in one another. But now, in Romans 6, he's especially impressing upon us the question, who do you obey? Sin or righteousness? Listen again to how Jesus puts it. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And Jesus is especially highlighting the sin of greed here, but we could extend the principle out to all sin. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says, it is either God or greed. It is either God or lust. It is either God or drunkenness. It is either God or arrogance. You cannot serve two masters. You're either enslaved to the one and hate the other, or you hate the one and are enslaved to the other. Paul is saying the exact same thing. 
We're slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. We're obedient to sin or we're obedient to righteousness. And when we become Christians, if we've truly become Christians, then we've become slaves to righteousness. That's who we are. That's who you are, Christian. A slave to righteousness, set free from sin. And so Paul concludes here in verse 19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, Christian, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul has said, when we trust in Christ, we become slaves to righteousness, and yet still we must continue to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, meaning every day it's as if we need to get saved all over again. And continually come before our master and say, I'm yours. My body is yours. My time is yours. My words are yours. My money is yours. My mind is yours. My future is yours. My choices are yours. I give myself to you, God, as a slave. So, friend, what about you? Who do you obey? Are you just culturally, nominally a Christian? Or are you a slave to righteousness? Do you obey the desires of your body and mind even if they contradict God's will and design for our lives? Or are you a slave to righteousness? Obeying God's teaching from the heart. Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are a slave to righteousness, you belong to master Jesus. So let's present ourselves, all of ourselves, to him as his slaves. That's true freedom. A new kind of enslavement. Three questions. Who do you obey? Secondly, what fruit do you reap? What fruit do you reap? So having laid out these two paths for us, these two options, slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness, he now, it seems, wants to inspire us to continue in our slavery to righteousness by reflecting on the fruit that each choice reaps. So listen again, starting in verse 20. He says, For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So he wants us to reflect back on our time before Christ when, as he puts it, we were slaves to sin. He says during that time we were free in regards to righteousness. He says, we were enslaved to sin. We were free in regards to God's righteous will for our lives. The boundaries of God's righteousness did not guide us through life. We were free from those boundaries, free in regards to God's righteousness, though in reality we were still slaves, slaves to sin. And Paul says, during that time, what fruit did you get? And he mentions two things. Shame and death. That's the fruit we reap from being slaves to sin. 
shame, and death. He refers to the things of which you are now ashamed and that the end of those things is death. Most of you guys here know Gary Gillum. He's one of our pastors still and is our founding pastor. Pastor Gary is 70-something years old, but he's lived 150 years worth of life and has some amazing stories because of it. And Gary didn't become a Christian until he was 35 years old, so he lived a lot of his life without Jesus as his Lord. And Gary would tell you he came from a crazy part of town, and he ran with a crazy crew for a long time, and he's got some crazy stories. And there was one time when Gary and I were hanging out with a group of guys, and I'll say, Gary, tell them about how you used to purchase Lions tickets. Tell them about your friend who stole the airplane. Tell them about this wild thing. Tell them about that crazy story, because I, in my immaturity, am just trying to get laughs. And Gary quietly, humbly responded to my request. Man, I can't talk about that stuff just willy-nilly like that. I'm ashamed of that stuff. It was wrong. People got hurt. People could have got hurt and worse. It was shameful to live like that. And I was just like, oh, you're right. What fruit did you get at that time when you were committing those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Gary feels that. I, when I think about it, feel that. And I bet you can too. Sin isn't a joke. Adultery isn't funny. Sexual immorality isn't cool. Arrogance isn't to be applauded. Greed isn't a laughing matter. Lying isn't hilarious. It's shameful, destructive, painful, foolish, and ultimately it bears the fruit of death. That's the fruit we reap if we're slaves to sin. But, verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Slavery to sin leads to shame. Slavery to God leads to glory. Slavery to sin leads to destruction. Slavery to God leads to sanctification or holiness, meaning this soul-level prosperity and contentment in God. Slavery to sin leads to eternal death, but slavery to God leads to eternal life. And all of this is meant to be an encouragement to us to present ourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. Paul wants us to meditate on what our lives are producing. Is your life enslaved to sin, producing shame and death, or is your life enslaved to God, producing holiness and life? Who do you obey? What fruit do you reap? And finally, what destiny awaits you? What destiny awaits you? Look again at verse 23. The apostle concludes, 
The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So the idea seems to be that sin bears the fruit of death because sin earns death. Death is sin's payment. If you work hard at your job, you earn the wage of your salary. Your salary is the fitting wage for your work. And just so, the fitting wage for sin is death. This is the way it's been from the beginning. God created our world to prosper and to flourish under his lordship, but the first humans and everyone since has resisted God's lordship over our lives and sought to live life on our own terms, free from his rule and reign over us. God created us to live, but because of sin, we are destined to die. Some of you guys may have heard of the film Final Destination. It's a somewhat corny horror movie that came out 20 years ago when I was in high school and any excuse to get out of the house was fine with me, no matter how bad or scary the movie was. Well, since the movie Final Destination has become a franchise, competing with the likes of The Fast and the Furious for the most remakes. Yes, there are six, count them, Final Destination films. So as corny as those movies may have been, they seem to have struck a nerve to some degree. And all of the movies are based on plots in which the main character is constantly and narrowly escaping situations in which they were supposed to die. This character was supposed to die in a plane crash that he just barely failed to get onto, and so he watches it go down as he hangs out in the hangar. And from then, death starts to pursue him in all these other crazy ways. So these films seem to tread on the truth that all of us have this sense that death is after us. Death is pursuing us. Death is our destination. And all we can do is narrowly escape until we can't. Because it's our final destination. Well, this narrative has the ring of truth to it. I don't think that these are Christian films by any means. You're probably not going to see Final Destination on pureflix.com. But the movie has the, the ring of truth to it. Because of our sin, we have earned death. Death has a claim on each one of us. We are not free from death. It is going to happen. It's where we're destined. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. The characters in those movies are constantly running, hiding, fighting death, trying to avoid it. But the way to escape death is not from running and hiding. The way to escape death is from receiving. Despite our death-deserving sin, God extends to us the gift of life in Jesus. And friend, it doesn't matter how awful of a sinner you may have been, salvation is a gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. It is a gift to be received. 
Receive Jesus and be free from death. Trust in Jesus and be free from shame. Give your heart to Jesus and be free from the power of sin. We are a freedom-loving people. We sing about it. We celebrate it. We value it. We love our civil liberties, freedom of speech, the freedom to bear arms, the freedom of religion, and so on. But we can have all of those freedoms and still be enslaved to sin. The apostle is teaching us that we only experience true freedom when we are enslaved to God. God's grace doesn't give us license to sin. God's grace frees us from having to sin and transforms us into slaves of righteousness. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, I'm aware in this moment that many of us have shameful things on our minds and in our consciences and in our memories. Sin and failure, betrayal, So, Father, there's a heaviness for us now as shame cripples us and smothers us and steals us living out who we're meant to be. So, Father, I thank you this morning for grace that as much as our shame smothers us, your grace smothers it all the more. And so I pray, Father, for a fresh experience of grace for each one of us. No matter how far we may have strayed, no matter how nasty the sin may have been, pour out your grace. Father, we thank you too for the cross, the broken body, and the shed blood of Jesus that proves Despite how shameful we've acted, you are not ashamed of us. But you call us your children and you welcome us home and you free us from the power of sin. And so God, I lead us all now once more and we'll do it again tomorrow, presenting ourselves to you as slaves of righteousness committed to master Jesus and his will for our lives. Father, I pray too for any here, for any here who are enslaved to sin, for any here who are deceived by cultural and nominal Christianity, God, wake us up to the reality of the way we're living. Come, Holy Spirit, and do this awakening work to show us who we really are and show us the fruit that we're bearing, shame and death. 
So God, have mercy as we continue to worship you. We pray for your life-giving spirit to meet us here now and transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Help us conform to the image of Jesus as we put to death sin and present ourselves to you, our master and king. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.